This, this here, uh, let me get the slides up, is Antonio Stradivari. Look at that guy. This is uh, considered by many to be the greatest instrument maker of all time. Uh, in the 16 and 1700s, he made some 1,000 instruments, mostly violins. If you've ever heard of a Stradivarius violin, if you ever heard that Stradivarius, this is the guy. Um, he made some guitars, some harps, uh, and of them, there are about five to six hundred left. And one of them is this. This is called the General Kid, because at a certain point it was owned by General Kid, and in the 1800s. And it's one of them. It's left, and it is priceless. Uh, the Wikipedia article says that it is currently valued somewhere around $10 million. But it gets better because in the early part of this century, it belonged to the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. And this guy, Peter Stump, was the, the principal cellist, the lead cellist, that's what you want to call it, the principal cellist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And he was having a great day. And after one of the performances in 2004, he was having uh, some people over. And so he got home and, and, he, and he had the cello in its case with him. And he let himself into the house. And in his haste, probably getting ready, what, whatever you do to get people in your house, he left the cello on the front porch. <laughs> and it was stolen. And so I got some, uh, these are some true quotes. I just literally cut and pasted from the Los Angeles Times. So here it says, uh, you know, amidst fears that a sophisticated ring of bandits had made off with the 17th century church because if this thing's worth millions. And actually the reason why Stradivarius uh, owners carry their instruments around with them is because every one of them is so photographed, so known. How are you, if you were to steal one, how are you going to sell it? Everyone knows what that thing is. You could never, you could never say, well, where did you get that Stradivarius from? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you'd, we'd know. Okay, so, so because of that, they don't take incredibly great uh, security care with them. And this one got carried off and they thought sophisticated ring of bandits until a couple days later, there appears, so this is from the, uh, the article. It says the Los Angeles Police Department released videotape I imagine because in Los Angeles, someone had some sort of security tape that showed a young man on a bicycle, probably a teenager from the neighborhood, making off with the cello. The greeny video shows the thief pedaling away with the silver cello case under his arm, and then it has the sound of him crashing into trash cans before getting away, and that's super important because as near as we can tell, that's when it got broken. <laughs> well, next, the story turns to a, a young woman who found it in a dumpster. Because this thing, you know, the, the, the news reports about it and there's all sorts of want ads and there's, there's, um, there's a reward out for its, for its arrest, for its eminent capture, I'm not sure. And, and the kid probably realized he was carrying something way too hot and he throws it away. She finds it in a dumpster and there actually a homeless man helps her uh, load it into her car. I love the homeless man part because I worship a homeless man. So anyway... Uh, there it is. At this point, it was worth three and a half mil. It's worth way more now, probably because of this story. And uh, she loads it up. She takes it home. And then this is, from, uh, this is her from the article. It says, the woman, a West Side resident, brought the cello home and asked her boyfriend, a cabinet maker, if he could repair it. But she said, if not, keeping going there, <laughs> the article then said, the woman then also told her boyfriend if he couldn't, the cello might make an unusual compact disc case. She asked him, you know, can you fix it? If not, just turn it into a CD case for me. Did you feel that? 
I, 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 want, you to, I want you to remember the feeling of, of horror that you had when I told you that a Stradivarius cello worth millions was this close to becoming a stupid CD rack. We don't even use CDs anymore. It wasn't even going to be an MP3 rack. It was an, oh, it's going to be a CD rack. Yes, I still use CDs, all right? All right, fine. I'm old. I still use my, okay, anyway. Um, thank God my boyfriend doesn't work too quickly on things of mine, she said. Welcome, if you will. I'm Steve Risky, as she said. I'm the, I'm the teaching pastor here right now. And we are going to, for the next six weeks, look at the book of Ephesians, a letter written to the church of Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. And, and I wanted to start with this story because it fits so much of what Ephesians talks about. I want to go back through this story and I want to change only a precious few things because I want you to imagine that you're the cello. That's right, you're, you're going to be a cello for a minute. And in this case, I want to think, and maybe instead of a, a dumb kid rolling off with you thinking that he found a, a, a cheap score, I want you to imagine you actually ran away. You know, the, the Bible calls the enemy a thief and a destroyer and the thief, and, and you've run away, and there you've become destroyed. And you have this problem because in your, in your earliest memories, what you really remember is being found in a dumpster. Dumpsters are trash. If it had stayed in the dumpster, we've all seen Toy Story 3, right? We know what's coming. You go through the grinder, and, and if the cello can't climb up and over the thing, then, then you're going you're gonna to end up in the, where it's all going down into the dumpster, unless the claw comes and gets you. And if you haven't seen Toy Story 3, I'm really sorry about how sad your life is, really. It's Toy Story 3, come on! But uh, here is this opportunity in the dumpster to become shredded and worthless and burnt. And in many ways, we find ourselves there and we look. We look for some redemption of our being, some validation, some way to say, I know what I am and, and, and who I am. And life offers you an opportunity to become a CD rack. Because when we were on the outside, when you saw it, remember the wave of, of horror that, that this Stradivarius was almost turned into a CD rack. But if you're the cello, I think it might feel different. I think it might feel a little bit like, well, what I am I? I'm supposed to be a cello, only I'm broken. I don't play. And if anyone came and said, well, what's your identity? What are you? I, I, I'm a cello, I guess. Well, play me something. I can't. I don't do that. Do you feel the worthless feeling that begins to come? And if somebody said, look, maybe you could have sort of been that, but you know what? At least you can be something of value. At least you can have some worth to your life. You could be a CD rack. People are going to listen to CDs for like three more years before MP3s take over. At least I'm something, you might say in your heart. And the worst part of it all is, if I say... Let's return you to the maker. So I'm going to advance old Antonio Stradivari. Apparently he's like a Highlander or something because he's going to keep going and he's still alive. And if he were still alive, the, the fact is when this cello was returned, it took 18 months for it to be repaired. We brought it to some master repairer of cellos. But if we could have, we would have loved to have returned it to the very maker himself. Old Stradivari. And say, can you remake this into what it truly is? But it took 18 months 
What's your identity? I'm a cello. I don't play. I could in, in a few hours become something of worth or I could wait and I could wait and I could go through painful process after painful process still going, where's my music? Where's the cello in me? Until finally I become the thing that I am. This is the gospel. The gospel is a God who made us and we who are lost and broken and found in a place where we could not be what it is we truly are. And we go searching for identities. We go searching for looking for the place that causes us to fit. And into that story, Paul begins. So let's jump in. But uh, I'll help you out a little as we go along just to see how people wrote letters. Because over the next six weeks, we're going to cover most of the book of Ephesians. We call it a book. It was a letter. It's six chapters long in your, in your Bible, so slightly less than six pages. It's a long book where uh, some of us are doing Bible in a year and, and, you know, the book of Genesis is like 50 chapters. It feels like a book and it takes weeks to get through. When we do Ephesians, guys, it's going to take like seven minutes. You're going to like this book. Okay, but uh, the rest of you, Ephesians, we're on it. And Paul jumps in and this is how letters were written. We have some sort of strange letter writing process where <laughs> the person has to actually skip past the whole letter and go to the end to find out who wrote it. Uh, they were much smarter about things. They realized the person who's reading this is going to want to know who is writing it to him. And so they began. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is what he says to you. He says, it's me. I'm Paul writing a letter to you. And, and he addresses it to then to its tomb. To the saints who are in Ephesus. And the faithful in, in, in Jesus Christ. Thank you guys. Um, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's a greeting. By the way, I recommend you start writing letters like this because it makes sense. Now, nah, no one will get it. You should probably just do it the dumb way we do it. But, <laughs> and let's be honest, who here's written a letter? Because with your MP3s came emails. And then the college students are like, who uses email? Welcome to being old, everybody. The college students, aren't many of them here today. They're like at a retreat or something. So we'll make fun of them while they're not here. It'll be great. And moving on, the next thing you would do in an ancient letter is you would provide, you would say some sort of thankfulness. I'm thankful for you as a person. You, it's just the way you write letters in, in the ancient world. And so most of your letters in the New Testament start with some note of thanks, for, both for them and for the work of God. And sure enough, Paul starts in and he begins this list. This, this overarching, I want to share all the things that I'm thankful for that Christ Jesus did for you. And he says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and the glorious of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, the beloved. Do you feel the run on sentence? The English teachers in here are kind of dying. In Greek, it was okay. And actually, our modern English translators have to kind of like, just to give you as a reader some breathers, they have to artificially put in some periods and, and new verbs and connectors to try to like, but it isn't like that in the Greek. It just comes out firing. Run-on sentences were cool back then, apparently. I don't know. But once you see a list, if you're reading the Bible and, and, and you see cause and effect, if this, then that, you try to like make, okay, what's the if? What's the, the condition? And then what's the thing that comes out of it? But when you see a list, there's a thing you can do. And I've done it for you here. Check this out. A little piece of paper here. That's right. Huh? With fake handwriting. Because there's a handwriting font. A list of spiritual blessings. 
because that's what it says. Who's given us every spiritual blessing? And what's about to come for the next 14 verses is this list. And I want to today explore them with you. And I want to help you draw your eyes back and see them as a whole. Because what can happen is you can just sort of start to read it and it comes so rapid fire. Even as I read it to you, did you feel me reading it rapid fire? Where it just feels like maybe something like cool Christian-y thing with the Christian-y thing and I've got some more awesome Christian-y things and you get to the end and be like, mm, that felt Christian-y. That can happen to me and so if, if you related. Okay, and so it can help to be like, well, what was the list? What was here? And so uh, because of how often he used the word grace, I put a little subtitle here. Or, if you will, everything you need to know about grace. Grace. Let's define that. We sometimes use it to describe a prayer that we say before dinner. Can somebody say grace? But uh, it's a word that means something like an unmerited gift. Uh, the way it was taught to me, that, that caught with me, and so I'll just keep telling the same one over and over. It came from a man named Stuart Briscoe, but he said, I want you to imagine my child got in trouble. You'd have to imagine it. My children actually never sin. But uh, someone else's child might. My son's in the back laughing. Okay. But uh, my child got in trouble. And, and I say to my child, here's the thing you've done. Because you've done this, you're grounded for a week. If they deserved that, that we would call that justice, right? But supposing in that day, I want my child to understand mercy. And I say, here's the thing you've done. You deserve to be grounded for a week. But because I love you today... I am not going to give you that grounding. Notice, I required my child to understand what justice would have been or else mercy is just like, well, I'm not... Because if as a parent, I see them do that thing and I do nothing, that's not mercy or anything. That's just me being a negligent parent, um, which might happen sometimes. But, uh, but if I say you're supposed to get this, but I'm not going to, I'm going to show you mercy, my child gets to feel the thing being removed. Mercy is not getting what it is we truly deserved. But if I say to my child, you did this thing, you deserve to be grounded, and I'm not going to punish you, there's justice, there's mercy, and I'm going to take you out for ice cream, that's grace. Grace is when the gift that comes, that comes freely, is not only not deserved, because you can't deserve a gift, but actually the opposite was truly deserved. And he keeps speaking in this passage about his glorious grace, and so because of that, that's what we're going to call our list, and diving in, going back to the passage here, keep going, <coughs> he says, Here's the first one. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart. We often use it to mean, oh, that person thinks they're so holy. And we mean something like, they don't sin very much. But it doesn't mean that exactly. It means to be set apart for a different purpose. So if I was... Um, if I was the kind of kid in school who was a really great athlete, and I wasn't, but I was, and, uh, and I was really great at all, but I decided to be set apart only for football. Actually, when I, when I ran track, it turns out I could run fast and jump. I just couldn't throw a ball very well or hit a ball. Also, shooting a ball was difficult for me to do well. But uh, in track, when we started track, coach would make it very clear, during track season, you're not allowed to play basketball. Because he had just lost too many runners to an ankle injury or whatever. Because in basketball, you know, all the lateral movement, right? And runners, we don't need lateral movement. We just kind of keep going in a straight line. And so, just keep running, right? And our idea of turning is like a big, huge quarter mile bend, right? So, we were set apart. 
Once we were in track, before track and after track, coach didn't care. But when you were in track, you were set apart for track. And the other sports, especially basketball, he had a big thing about basketball, you didn't do. And in the same way as Christians, Jesus is saying, you're set apart for my stuff now. Before Christian, you do whatever you want. You've got your thing. You make your life. But if you've joined to this kingdom, you're considering yourself one who's set apart. But it's this blameless one I want you to catch. Because I don't think we all feel blameless all the time, do we? Man, I, I get frustrated and, and, and maybe bad drivers in front of me bring out a piece of me I don't like or, or I fail my wife or my kids and, and we, we drop the ball, right? But I want you to catch this thing that grace does. You see, because Jesus, like the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow as the hymn goes. In the same way, the first thing we understand about grace is that there was one, there was one who saw what we did and who took it and placed it all on the cross. And so the enemy is able to come to us and truthfully say, hey, you did this thing. If you listen carefully to the way the enemy, to the way shame, to the way our brokenness wants to speak, it doesn't just admit the thing. It starts to add a narrative that follows. So here's the thing you did. You lost your temper. Shame and the enemy comes in and says, therefore, it's the therefore you want to pay attention to because something called condemnation begins to follow. It says, therefore, you ought to hide. Therefore, you can't talk to God. Therefore, you should feel, you should just, you are, just go throw your cello self into a dumpster because that's all you are. Just, you're useless. You're worthless. Do you feel the narrative that begins to follow? The truth of the claim then becomes a condemnation that follows. But because of the work of Jesus, he says, no. The first thing you need to know about you is the cross paid it all. The enemy may be able to levy a truth claim about a thing you have done, but he cannot add condemnation to it. He cannot. So this is the first thing on the list here. Here's our little list. We're going to add to it here. It says he chose us. To be set apart and unaccusable, right? Blameless, unaccusable. The fact is, you cannot have condemnation added to you. You cannot if you're in Christ Jesus. I want to put a real quick work into he chose us. If you've ever uh, begun to pursue this sort of theological line, did God choose us or did we choose him? can really start to rattle the brain. This idea called predestination or, or election, there's all sorts of terms. The idea that God chose us, it can start to feel like, wait a minute. If God chose us, then does it mean that he like actually actively decided that he doesn't like some people and wants them to go to hell? Does he want them to sin? Does God like sin happening? It can start to like really add up. Or did I choose him? And all I'm going to say to you on this, because I do not want to get lost in a theological controversy that's not going to help us, is... Uh, this winter, I'm going uh, to perform my 30th wedding. I've done a lot of them. You know, do you? Yes, I do. Do you? Yes, you know. You know, man and wife, all those sorts of things you say, right? Every single one that I've done, I've required both to give vows. Both, both the husband and the, and, and the wife. They both have to say the lines, richer or poorer, sickness, sin, and health, that to his part. It's not sufficient for only one to have made those vows, is it? And I'll say that with you and God. If you chose God, but God did not choose you, it is not a sufficient love relationship. And vice versa, if God chose us and we in no way meaningfully chose him, it is a meaningless marriage. 
And so whatever we're going to say, it is important that he be a chooser as well. And in this passage, I'll try to point it out as we go by. There's also some choosing that you did, both choosers. But going on, I want to go back to the passage because I want you to see what Paul cares about. So he goes on and says, in love, he predestined, see more God choosing, for us, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. As sons in the Greek is sort of like the children, right? Children through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's more of that grace. To which he blessed us in the beloved. Paul cannot stop talking about how awesome God's work is. And the second thing he says is, we are adopted. I have an adopted son who I love with all my heart. And one of the super interesting things in watching, because I have a, a, a biological son as well, is I have one son who instinctively acts just like me. <laughs> For better and worse in this case. Um, the same, you know, the same notes home from the teacher that my poor mom got, my poor wife is having to deal with. She hates them and I kind of giggle under my breath a little like, <laughs> I remember that note. <gasps> yeah, yeah, teachers hated it when I didn't do homework. Do your homework, son. All right. Anyway, um, he's like me. He's so like me. And I have another son who I just adore. But his, his personality, his, his genetic personality came from another. And I have to un work to understand and I have to, to watch carefully and, and help him. But I want you to imagine, and this is where it gets silly and doesn't apply to my family anymore. I want you to imagine I'm perfect. And, and I have a son who's perfect, right? Because he's got my nature. And then I have this adopted son who would therefore have sort of the unperfect nature. And he's in this family trying to learn how to be perfect. Again, that stretches the analogy. But it doesn't stretch it when we start to talk about God. God is perfect. He's love and he has a way of doing family. And he's got his son and his son is perfect. And he walks around being perfect and healing people. And he follows the way of his father all the way to the cross. All the way through resurrection. And we, we as adopted children are not just sort of like, hey, we'll make you part of the family. This is the important thing that every time you see adoption in the scripture, you need to catch that it's not just God saying, you're in the family. It's him saying, I want to teach you how to live like my son. My bio son who really knows how to do it. He lives just like the family. And we're these adopted kids who we have our old way, our old broken way. And we're trying to learn to live like the family. With the cello, this is the part where we say, if the master is going to buy you back, if you're going to truly be what you were made to be, because remember, we were found in a dumpster broken. The master's going to have to say, I have to make you back into what it is that you were made for. I have to teach you to be like the family. So here on the list, we got to add this on now. Adoption to himself. He adopted us. He gave us this new nature, right? This is important because here we sit in our human everyday life having to ask ourselves, where does my family name come from? When I look for an identity for myself, I can start to search around. What am I good at? What do I do? I, I'm not very good at shooting a ball. But you remember in high school, I'm not good at shooting a ball, but oh, you know what? I can run. You know why I went to track? Because I could find an identity there because I liked playing football way better than I liked running track right, until I found out how much it hurt to get hit by people twice my size. But, uh, but there were things that I liked more that I might have done, but, but I was searching for an identity. And the fact was when I ran the half mile, there was only one kid in my school who could beat me. 
that's an identity. I can find a place for myself. And I look and I, and I try out all these identities hoping to find one. But the more I try, the more I struggle, the more I end up in, in the cello narrative going, maybe I could be a CD rack. I got to be something. Maybe I'm something. But do you remember the horror we felt when a Stradivarius almost turned into something that it wasn't? It's a Stradivarius. That's what it is. But in our hearts we say, yes, but I can't make music. I'm broken. And the adopter says, trust me. Trust me. I've made you my own. You know, so like uh, when we look at a guitar, we know what it is because the name's on the headstock, right? <laughs> I don't think Stradivarius wrote his name on headstocks. But, but that's what it is. That right there, that's a Gretsch. It's not as cool as my Les Paul. Just letting you know, man. Mine says, mine has two names on it, by the way, because the guitar maker Gibson and the greatest guitarist in the world at the time, Les Paul, got together and made a guitar. Mine has two names on it. That's why mine is better. His only has one. But uh, here's the deal. I just want you to see. You have a name on the headstock of your heart, <clears throat> so to speak. The maker of you is what gives you value. You are made by God. You are crafted by him. When God made a you... I'm like trying to find someone and the lights are so bright I can like just sort of see like dim faces. I see Dom. When the Lord made a Dom. That's it. That's the one. That is the there that he made. But I promise you, because I've been friends with Dom since he was a freshman, in his heart, he's like, what is this stupid thing that I'm a Dom? I don't even know what that is. And his heart was looking for some way to give him value. And because I've known him since he was a freshman, I saw him try out the various CD rack ideas. Maybe I could be this or that. But it wasn't until he said, I'm just made by God and allowed God to begin to repair him to what he was that he understood the value of what he is. Adopted. We're going to keep going because there's so much in this passage. So keep going. I've taken way too long. I've got to figure out what I'm because I can't cover this whole thing. It's so rich. There's so much, and I'm trying to help you see it, but I'm not going to take your whole day to do it, and so I got to figure out. I got to strategize now, but I know what I'm going to do here, so I'm going to keep going. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So going to the list here, right? Let's keep that list going here. Um, he redeemed and forgave us. One of the reasons we don't allow the repairer to come. As we said, you don't understand. I did this thing. I don't deserve it. In order to feel worthy of being called a Stradivarius again, of being called to making, I need to fix me first. And we go to try to self-repair. <laughs> and it goes incredibly poorly. But we try so hard. This is what religion's about. We must just accept that he forgives us in Christ and wants to remake us and redeem us. So the redeem is the remaking part and the forgive is I'm not going to hold against the fact that you broke you. And finally this. Keep going to the passage. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and earth. God had a plan from the beginning when he made humans. He made Adam and Eve actually and told them be fruitful multiply be fruitful and multiply, take dominion of the earth, that humanity was made from the beginning to be God's 
actual workers on earth that he's like, I'm going to leave this place to you. I, I'm in charge of all the creation. I do all of it. I'll take care of Mars and Venus and the sun or whatever. You guys, you're going to be my caretakers to earth. You're going to get to like try out being like me and being like my family and just like the father running the family business and says, here, this is your piece of the business. Go run it. And we took it and we ran it into the ground. And Jesus comes as one of us as a human and he restores our purpose in God to build his kingdom. Man, if you guys would come up. I'm gonna, I had so much to say today. I apologize. It took too long. But I can't stop talking about this. You come into this life looking for validation of your being. You search all around. You try out identities. You try out plans for your life. You try things hoping that you'll find that feeling of your being that says, I know what I am. I figured it out. And as we step into this book of Ephesians, there's not a ton, uh, actually for the first three chapters, Paul has no commands on how to live it. There's not a ton I wanted to say today about what you do. It's a perspective I wanted you to try out today that says, what am I really? Because as you set sail into this week and as you try out things and as you try to figure out what is it that I am and I'm doing, you're going to ask, have to ask the question, what's my real identity? Is it your job title? Is it your hobbies? Is it the things that you do that you're hoping will give you value? If you draw the camera lens all the way back and start with this incontrovertible fact, that you are an instrument, that you are a thing made by God. His name is written on your headstock, whether you like it or not. You, that's what you are. Then it turns out that you're priceless. The Stradivarius cello is priceless even if it can't make music. Because it's a Stradivarius, that's all there is to it. It doesn't matter if it's going to be months and months and months in repair. That's all it is. It's a Stradivarius and you are the making of God. Let's worship with that thought and then I'll close this up in a minute. So in the end, there's two ways to look at a room of people like this. You can think of this as a Stradivarius repair shop. And you can look at it like the enemy and says, what a bunch of broken instruments. What a waste. Or you could see truly and say, oh my word, millions of dollars of instruments are here. This is a privilege to be here. But your heart has to be asking the question because this is chapter 2 where Paul's going, great. If I'm truly made by God, how do I end up being what it is that I truly am made to be? That's where we're going next week. I want to invite you back. In the meantime, if you could leave this list up. He showed us the mystery of his will. He's made us co-inheritors of his kingdom. He gave us his Holy Spirit. I didn't even get to some of the best parts because of preacherly negligence and going too slow which I know you're probably good, but I feel like I've robbed Paul of some of his awesomeness. My friend Paul's over there. He's feeling robbed. Um, you are the making of the high king. It is the only thing I need to know about you. To know why I must love you. To know why I must value you. To know why I must treat you the way God does. Because you are not trash. You are not a waste. You are not broken. And you are not some stupid CD wreck. You are the making of the high king. And it's been great to be amongst you. Thank you for coming.